Hello, dear listener, and welcome to That Tech Show, where you're joined by myself, Sam Gregory, and my co-host, Chris Adams. Hello. That Tech Show delves into the world of tech and those that make it happen. We're joined every week by a special guest, as well as giving you the lowdown on the latest tech news. We've got an amazing show lined up for you today, and, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you introduce them. Chris, who have we got on the show today? Well, this week we have the amazing Mamta Gira. Now, Mamta and I worked together as technical program managers at Love Film and Amazon Video back in the day. In fact, almost a decade ago. We hadn't spoken for quite some time, and I really loved this talk. Not only do we talk about managing really complex programs, we talk about her public speaking, how she has developed her passion for leadership coaching and training, and we also talk about her experience as a woman in tech, which personally I found to be the most enlightening part of the talk. So definitely stay tuned for that part. Well, that sounds delightful if I do say so myself. So without further ado, here is Mamtagira. All right, cool. Uh, well, let's let's get going then, I guess. So, um, can you start, Mapta, by introducing yourself and uh, telling us a little bit about what you do? Yeah. So, um, I'm my name is Mapta Guerra, um, and I have been in delivery for almost twenty years, or over twenty years, should I say? So, um, I worked um, from being a very junior project manager to being head of delivery for a team of about sixty people in my previous permanent role. Um, but what I realized very quickly was that I wasn't the best at leadership. And the reason being is I was never taught to be a leader. So I was bringing all my sort of um, avoiding conflict and people pleasing things into um, my leadership style, which worked really well at times, but it didn't work well other times when I had to resolve issues and, and conflicts and that sort of stuff. So my sort of empathy and my understanding of people went really well, but otherwise I was struggling as a leader. So it was a Swedish company that I was working at and um, I basically went on a leadership coaching program in Stockholm, in Sweden. Love Scandinavians, they're amazing, and they're at the forefront of everything, really. And they provided a holistic sort of way to do leadership. And I went on it, loved it so much that I launched it in the UK three years ago. So, so was, is, is, it, is it your company that you've launched, or is it an, is it a, 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 an offshoot, or what is it exactly? Yeah, it's like an offshoot, basically. So they're called the New Leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been going in Stockholm for like 10 years, um, and I hadn't really experienced, I hadn't had any leadership coaching before, so it was all new to me. But what I realised that is that they look at you as a whole person and a holistic person. So it was really bringing your whole self to work rather than just a part of you, which we don't really do in the UK that much, I don't think. Um, so it was about being vulnerable and kind of showing yourself in, in different ways. So that's why I launched it here, because I realized that if I hadn't experienced it, then lots of people probably haven't experienced that type of coaching either. Um, and that's why I brought it over. But I thought, you know, like it gave me so much joy to kind of feel that I'm adding benefits to people. Because I think one of the things that I loved the most in delivery was the people side of things. You mm-hmm. know, like processes were great, as do stuff really well. But actually, the, the, the people skills was 90% of the job, wasn't it? Because you have to influence, negotiate and, and get things mm-hmm. done and collaborate. So um, I've been doing that for the last three years, but I'm also in between doing some delivery stuff as well as and when needed. So kind of like expanding my portfolio. Well, they always say that uh, people deliver projects, don't they? Uh, <laughs> um, they do. So when was it the, exactly that you had this sort of realisation then? What, what, what company was it you were working for again? What was the name? I was working for Exedo. Um, ah, so Exedo are a, a Swedish um, video and demand company, basically. So very similar to what you were doing at, at Love Film, Sky, mm-hmm. Amazon, 
um, delivering video and demand content uh, to various platforms and customers. Um, I think the difference was, was that I was more on the customer facing side. So in Amazon and Sky, you're kind of working with bigger teams. You have stakeholders, but our stakeholders were customers like who wanted stuff as and when they wanted it, basically. So that was a bit different for me is working on the agency side rather than the other side. Um, and it's, it was a small company. Um, I started off as a, a global program director, um, kind of looking at different initiatives across the globe and jumping in as when needed to kind of fix problems or um, push it over the line. Um, but then I progressed quite quickly into the head of delivery. So I was managing a team of around 60 engineers and um, project managers basically over there. So that was really interesting. And what was the, what was the gap then? When did, you, when did you feel like you were missing some leadership skills? I think because, um, okay, what I realized was that I was, when I was a project manager, I was very much in control of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And when I became a leader and I was managing a team of like program directors or project managers, I kind of lost control of that because I couldn't really see what was going on. And I realized very quickly that um, the processes in certain areas were failing, but I couldn't really see what was failing. And mm. so it was really difficult for me to kind of get a grip on what was going through the whole team. And, and I realized that I wasn't asking the right questions or I wasn't, you know, um, having the right meetings or the processes weren't right because all of a sudden I wasn't in control of that anymore. Other people were. And I think that was a bit of a shock to my system. And being the head of delivery, you got, you know, you got the brunt of it. You know, if things were going wrong, the customers would shout at you, the entire stakeholders wouldn't be happy um and the priorities are different and also is like more hr based so i was looking at after people and that's also different to project management right suddenly you're going from project management to managing people so it's very hr it's about looking at the development and looking at the objectives if they're happy or not you know dealing with any conflicts with each other as well so i found that really hard and the third thing was is that not being a mate with everyone anymore mm. <laughs> as a pm yeah yeah mm. much as a manager, you're not so much and you have to be really careful about your boundaries and what you say and how you say it and not to try and people please. And one of my issues was people pleasing, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of your strong skills, I think, wasn't it? Amazon was to be a mate with everybody. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you. That's what I love about the coaching side of things as well, because you really get down and deep into like what a person's like and able to kind of bring out any sort of issues that they have, but then you can kind of um, wrap it up and, and take it to the next level. Whereas with this, you're sort of dealing with, you, you have to be really mindful about, you know, the projects they manage, the customers they manage, the relationships with other people, you know, the relationship they have with me. And so I found I found leadership super hard, actually. And it took a lot of learning for me to really grasp what it meant for me. I think it's a it's a common thing, isn't it, to say that um, you know, the the manager of managers, becoming a manager of managers is where that steps up to the next level and it becomes harder to actually to actually see how those um uh, to, to, to see exactly as you were saying, really, so that, you know, you can still use your program and project management skills, but it's very difficult if you don't have that visibility because you've got to coach through somebody else. Absolutely. And the other thing was as well, hiring and firing people. So I was in a position now where I had to fire people and make them redundant as well if they weren't performing. And I wasn't used to that either. So, mm. you know, the, like, it's not funny, actually, but like just the feedback I used to get or the way that people would react when you gave them some bad news. And some people take it really well. Some people would be very angry at you and the stuff that people would say, and like, I wasn't used to it. So it used to really knock me, knock me for seven. Cause I was like, 
I'm trying to do my job. It's not very pleasant. And this person is reacting really badly. And so I had to deal with those emotions as well, like not feeling constantly guilty about, about the changes I was making in the team or that sort of stuff. So it was just a whole, and what I realized is that people aren't taught to be leaders. They really aren't, mm. you know, you kind of get promoted into certain positions, but really you have to learn about how to kind of lead people, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a, it's a difficult, it's definitely a difficult thing to do because I think if I reflect on our time at Amazon together, mm. you know, we were leading big projects because obviously Amazon, well, for, for people who don't know, Amazon doesn't tend to have project managers. They only have program managers. And as a result, there's far fewer people that are responsible for all of that uh, project-related or program-related work. So, you know, you end up with a, uh, you, you know, a handful of program managers for an organization that's got almost a thousand people in it. So as a result, you know, you are dealing with really big projects that have got like 100, 200, you know, 500 people part of that project. Mm. Um, you're managing massively complex things, but you're never really dealing with money. And because you're a, uh, you know, a program manager and you're, you're working on the delivery, you're never actually delivering, dealing with the line management of the people and all of the, all of their personal problems and, uh, you know, actually having to hire and fire people. It's a totally different stream of, of work at Amazon. And so you can be responsible for delivering some huge global products, <laughs> but without ever having to worry about that, uh, that people side of things. Exactly. And it's depending on because like I said, Amazon was a huge, um, you know, it is a huge organization, huge projects. And we just, it was exciting for us, I think, because we, they just opened up the new Amazon London office. It was brand new. And mm. we just moved in there, which was remarkable. I don't know if you ever met, did you were in the meeting with me when I met Jeff Bezos? Because he came to the, to the, um, to the office and we we're having a meeting and he kind of like, I think Paula was showing him around and he kind of knocked on the door. We had a chat and said, hi. And stuff like that. I still remember that. I can't believe I actually met the guy. It's amazing. Yeah, no, I, I missed that. I was in Seattle, ironically. Oh. <laughs> Were you there when uh, when Boris Johnson yes, came around as well? Yes, I was about well? to say the same thing. Yeah, he's one of my meetings. Yeah, because I was I was in I was in Seattle for that one as well. So I missed it. But apparently, he got stuck in a beanbag, didn't he? Our elegant prime minister. <laughs> has someone got a clip? Because we must release it. It has. Oh, to there viral. should be a clip of that, shouldn't it? Shouldn't there? <laughs> Boris Johnson scrambling around in a beanbag. And, and then so what we elected, we then we turned him into the prime minister. So that was a great idea, wasn't it? <laughs> I, know. I would have said a lot more things to him back then. I think I knew. <laughs> um, it, was, it was yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's one of those things where I think you know people you have to kind of learn different skills depending on where you are. But it's it's kind of having that nurturing and that, that support. And you know when you're an Amazon or a big company, you're very much told to do one thing: get this project done out the door. You know, and um, it's like I said, not worrying about budget necessarily, not worrying about other people's personal experiences. And it's a very driven environment as well, which actually I think becomes, I mean, obviously there's a lot of talk about Amazon being very aggressive, making a lot of people cry. Um, and I think that there's definitely a lot of that. Um, it teaches you to be quite aggressive, I think, in, in terms of how you work and how you behave. Um, did you find yourself that you'd adopted some of those techniques and you had to re almost relearn things after you left Amazon? Yeah, I had to, I was always nervous, I think, when I was at Amazon because mm. of these, I can't remember what those meetings were called. There were meetings that we had all the senior stakeholders in and senior management teams. And you had to kind of like, you know, 
talk about the, the reg status, I think. And oh, like, the CPR. The CPR, that's it, the CPR. Yeah, the critical oh, programme review, or obviously, you know, it, it, sometimes it was more genuine sort of medical CPR, I guess. <laughs> it was. Like, honestly, <laughs> I feel my heart palpitate every time I went into that, into that meeting. And so I think for Amazon, I was just always, um, not defensive, but I was always, you sort of felt like you had to look after yourself a little bit. Um, because you, you wouldn't know what was going on and it's quite political as well and I guess the only, only thing with me was because I was a contractor I was able to maybe separate myself a little bit from the politics and know that there was an end in sight if I needed it <laughs> or you know there was something else out there it was I mean I, we work with amazing people like yourself and, and other people that I still keep in touch with but it was wasn't the environment that I was used to especially coming from love film to Amazon it was completely different you know yeah yeah i mean just for for the people who uh who don't know what the cpr is just to give you a, a sense of how intense the cpr was it was an hour-long meeting that would generally cover somewhere in the region of about 100 projects that were in flight for a particular department and all of those 100 projects would be covered within that hour <laughs> and so you had to know exactly what your uh, update was what your status was uh, what your next steps were to if your project wasn't flagged as green what was your path to green of how you were going to fix that um, and you better know what you're talking about otherwise you'd basically get your head ripped off so it was really quite intense it definitely made you uh, it's quite an effective mechanism I think but um, but Amazon was certainly very aggressive in how it applies it um, yeah worth worth uh, worth flagging that one I think the, what I was going to ask you, though, is obviously, you, you, you know, you started in Love Film, as, as did I. Mm. Um, you were in Love Film for a while before I joined. So you had everything under control. Uh, you were getting things out of the door. You were like the, the person that people would go to if they wanted to get a project shipped and out of the door. Uh, you were the person that, uh, that, that would get all of that stuff done. Uh, so how did you find the difference between love film and then that amazon culture slowly creeping in and obviously the foundation of uh, the amazon development center in uh, in central london yeah no i think that you know going from so i was in, yeah, I was in love film for two years i believe i oh, think really? maybe you joined after yeah so i think maybe you joined maybe within a year afterwards possibly mm -hmm. um so the reason actually what i loved about love film and different companies that i work for which are smaller is that you have more opportunities to make change or make an impact of the change. So for me, um, I would choose projects which weren't going so well because one of my loves and what I love doing is jumping on projects and fixing it basically and, and kind of understanding. And that's why I think people used to come to me because I, I had one project when I started, I was getting a little bit bored. I asked my boss if I could get some more stuff. And so he's like, well, there's a whole load of stuff you can do so take these things and fix them basically. So I did, um, but the difference was when I moved, when we moved from Love Film to Amazon, that got completely changed because then I wasn't able to kind of, because um, it's such big global projects, you were able to make a change in your part of it, but you weren't able to really make an impact on the wider processes or the wider ways of working within Amazon. So I, so I found that particularly difficult to manage. And then what happens is my motivation starts declining as well because I end up again getting bored because I'm doing the same thing again and again not getting that challenging thing and for me and for the coaching that I do for delivery all I want to do is make an impact and add value basically and you can add value of course on these on these big projects and especially in Amazon and you can see them go live it's really exciting but you weren't able to make a significant change if you weren't happy with something for example 
you know, because you had to go through different layers of people to kind of get anything changed and things were coming down from Seattle. So it's very top down, right? Management in Seattle, you know, the process is coming from there and really we didn't have much control over it. Whereas Love Film, we had control over what the process should be, how it could be changed, how it could be improved. And suddenly that got kind of taken away and you had to work in, in a different way. So even though some of the Love Film culture was kept, I guess, from more around the people, we had to obey the way that Seattle worked and kind of do it that way instead. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it threw up, it threw the processes up in the air a bit, well, an awful lot, really. I think Love Film was a fantastically agile little company that was able to do an awful lot without that much resource, actually. Absolutely. We yeah. didn't, did we? We were a small little team and I had to churn out that much. And actually, I remember being so proud because, you know, we'd get some account on the PS3 back then or the Xbox mm. or, you know, the iPad and iPhone. Mm. And I'd be going up, up the escalator in like Bond Street and suddenly I'll see all these flashing images of the, the same project going live. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, I was really part of that. And so that made me feel really proud and really happy to kind of be part of that. But and with Amazon, you know, we did stuff on the Kindle, we got it out there live, but it was just... Yeah, it was such a cool little company to work for to kind of see the impact that we were making. There was definitely something more impactful, I think, about the Love Film advertising because it always <laughs> it felt like we were punching above our weight. And you know, you were you were out on the on the tube, <laughs> as you'd say, and you'd see you know you'd see your project up on up on the advertising in the tube. It was it was it was fantastic, really. It was amazing, wasn't it? And Sam, yeah, the uh, the Love Film name. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure who came up with that, but it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something which I maybe should have come out with something differently because when I say I used to work for Love Film, they're like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> kind of what exactly that? did you do at Love Film? <laughs> I think it had some, some issues, didn't it, in Germany, uh, because the translation didn't work so well. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> People thought it was, uh, you know, Love Film. Exactly. Uh, very, uh, very saucy. I think we had a lot of disappointed customers who, who only, only lasted for the free trial and then realized it wasn't exactly what they were expecting. No, totally. It was it was a very entrepreneurial um, company, um, and you were able to kind of make more of an impact with your work. I think whether you're a permanent or a contractor, to kind of get think really cool things out the door and very quickly as well. So like the, the the time we turned around things was super quick. Whereas you know in the bigger companies, it does take a bit of time to kind of get through all the gates and the barriers to kind of push something live. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, even, you know, Amazon for being such a huge company that the rate of delivery was was rapid. Did, did you find you went to Sky, I think, after Amazon? Is that right? Yes. So after Amazon, yeah, I went to Sky um, and I was working internally on Sky Store, which is you can find your set top box if you've got Sky at home. Um, and it's uh, renting uh, movies and, and box sets, basically, as well. So that was that was really cool. But, you know, Sky was a very big company. Um, and it was, it was, they hired people, especially for this actual, um, project. And so we were able for some reason in that company actually to get stuff out quite quickly, but we were working in a way where we were doing smaller releases. So, you know, like the alpha betas and like just pushing them out basically, and then kind of doing some user testing with them and, and that sort of stuff. So it was, it was a really cool project to work on. And then also, you know, the, it was easier to kind of, um, deploy um, these kind of um, projects onto, onto apps, so onto the mobile phones, onto the iPads, onto devices. So it was, it was getting easier to do that as mm. well and more popular because more people were like, you know, consuming content through their phone. So that was a massive change because before I was just doing TV mainly 
and set-top boxes and gaming consoles. But now we were like pushing out projects for the iPhone, Android, that sort of stuff, which was really cool. And you've always managed to maintain some level of uh, video specialties, I guess, throughout yeah, your career. Exactly. Do you feel yeah, you've become typecast? Have you become Possibly. typecast, or is that is yeah. that the um, is that just where your your you know your expertise truly lie? Do you know what? I think I've been typecast as well. But you know, you can apply <laughs> your skills to most projects anyway, right? But it's but the video side of it, yeah, has always stayed with me. And I, I honestly, like, I started in the video um, OTT industry back in nineteen. 97. Wow. Were you born then, Chris? I think you were. You know what? I started high school in 1997. <laughs> How do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I feel very old, mate. I feel very old. Um, but that, I started NTL, which turned into Virgin Media. And then we were working, putting content to set up boxes. Uh, video wasn't so common then. You know, the bandwidth, basically. I think it was still dial-up back then, probably. Um, but it was a lot of fun to work on. And the, you know, seeing that over 20 years, how it's rapidly changed and how you can like consume content in different ways is is mind-blowing and I get confused now I'm like I can't keep up enough to understand how this all works still you know I'm not sure about you but like it's just it's mind-blowing how it's just all changed and like you can just and getting used to the sort of generations of how they consume content like what's the next big thing what do people do you know yeah, no, it is it is incredible how it's moved along. I mean, I uh, I personally got more into programming again and started Did actually. You? Yeah, oh, so cool. I, I so I, I do um I do a fair amount of work as a hands on developer slash architect at the moment. So I do wow, I do go into a lot more detail than I used to actually. Um, partly because I was st- starting to see these kids come up who had totally different ways of uh, of developing and, uh, and, and understanding how things strung together. And I thought, well, if I'm going to remain technical, I've got to, well, mm. remain technical. I need to make sure I've, I've kept my eye in so I can actually still develop stuff. So I spend a fair amount of my time these days actually coding. And I think it's, um, I think it's really important, especially because in, even in the last 10 years, you know, with a lot of things around containerization and continuous delivery, you know, that's all changed massively. And so it's really important, I think, for me to be able to design stuff or even deliver programs to know um, to know how that works in detail and actually use it. I love that. And that's the thing is I, I started off life, I did computer science and I started off as a developer, mm. um, you know, very basic back in the day, but I realised I was a, not very good at it. And <laughs> so that's why I went to project management. It's like my people skills are a bit better than my coding skills. Um, but I, I'm, I, 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 I agree with you. That's exactly where I started. Um, that's why I've come to development almost a little later in life to go that's back amazing. to it. amazing. How are you finding it though? How are you finding going back to it after so many years? Is it, is it well, easy do you to know, talk? So I studied computer science in the same, same way. So what I find is I can be really mediocre in any language <laughs> so because i've got the computer science principles down uh i can i can i can you know string something together i can hack something together and actually I, i've done everything from hardware programming uh all the way up to you know all these containerization sort of things uh, and a lot of devops related stuff um so i'll quite happily develop in any language but i certainly am not a master of any of them Right. Yeah. So, but then you have the knowledge at least of how to build stuff and how to, how things work. And if you're working with a development team to kind of get involved in the processes and understand that a bit more right? and in terms of the architecture as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think, you know, what, once I've been dealing with quite a lot of complex programs recently, like, re again, really big things. You know, so like you were saying before about running departments and things, but not without not necessarily with those line management skills um, or, or responsibilities, let's say. Uh, but at least trying to figure out for a really complex program that's got so many things going on, excuse me, how do you deliver this in the right way so that you can, uh, over a number of years, actually. So how do you uh, tackle people not having enough capacity? You know, mm -hmm. so people don't have enough capacity because they haven't got enough time, so they can't deliver as many projects. So are there things we can do technically to create that capacity by making it easier to ship things, to make the environments more reliable, uh, to streamline the production? Uh, so, you know, I think knowing more about how to string all of this together um makes it easy to plan those sort of long long-winded programs that are that are, you know you, where you're dealing with the whole department you know how are you going to create that space for actual to get product out of the door you know if you if you're dealing with a very legacy system it's very hard to do i think if you you know if it takes you months to develop something um there was an example relatively recently where sam and i actually worked together at talk talk and uh, over a period of 18 months, we went from being able to do two releases a month to being able to do 60 releases a month. Um, and wow. it was a massive increase. And a lot of that came into improving the technology, improving the process. Um, but you needed to do both, you know, both right. technology process and actually the people side of things as well. And creating that culture was really important. Yeah, um, absolutely. I was about to say that, actually, because, you know, it's so super interesting looking at it from that tech point of view. But then I come and look at it from the other point of view, the people point of view as well, like yeah. where their time's going and you know what the culture's like, the work culture, you know, what, what's expected of them, what's not expected of them, how they, you know, do they set boundaries? Are they able to delegate? Are they, you know, all sorts of stuff like really, you know, um, impacts the way you do your work and the company culture is a massive part of that. And so do you spend a lot of your time coaching in the new leadership? Do you, do you, uh, do you tend to focus on, on the cultural side of things more than others or are there other aspects and elements that you tend to cover? Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, there's sort of more four key areas that we do focus on. So the one is the first one is the time where your time goes and how you manage your time. It's not just like it's not just schedules or um, to do lists. It's more around, you know, are you able to say no? Are you able to set those boundaries? Are you able to delegate and, and looking at those things, but also goal orientation. And actually, when I was working in, in, in the corporate world and in, in the big companies, I was never really set goals. I didn't know what goals were. I was just set mm. an objective for the year, possibly, which mm. I had to meet for the following year for my appraisal, my pay rise. But I wasn't really taught how to work in goals. But what I've realized recently is that looking at other companies, they do like things like OKRs. Yeah. And that's a really nice way of kind of creating, setting goals and executing them as well. I'm not sure if you've used them before. Uh, I'm familiar with OKRs. Do you want to talk a little bit about OKRs for people yeah. who aren't familiar about it? Yeah, I've not actually used it properly. I've just been hearing about it, but it's it's ultimately, you know, setting. It could be used in any context, I believe, whether it's your, you know, whatever department you're in. But it's setting um, a high level goal, understanding how you can execute that goal, and reviewing it every quarter or every week with your team. Basically, I'm not sure if that's a really simplified version of it. <laughs> Chris you might add some stuff in there as well. <laughs> uh, well, I think the important thing with an OKR as well is that you've got something that's measurable in there. And yes. actually, you know, we had we, we had a lot of those uh, measurable targets um, 
you call them smart targets, I think. Smart goals, yeah, exactly. Smart goals. Exactly. Um, in, in, uh, in Amazon as well, didn't we? So you would have a goal where you, your goal is to increase, you know, if it's a product-related goal, the goal is to increase the product the revenue by 20% or something like that. And it's yes. actually a measurable thing within a time period that you can go back and review and see if you actually met that goal. Absolutely. So our, for the question for you, are OKRs are quite a new thing in the tech world? Is it a new thing that's been introduced? Um, I, I mean, I think we, we might have to look this up afterwards mm. and Sam and I can talk about it uh, after the after the session. Um, but in I, I, I've been using them for a good five years. I think it's um, I think it's five years anyway, but it's certainly something that came out of, I think, maybe Google. Mm. Um, I know they use that as a big practice. Um, yes. But again, I think it is this evolution of smart goals, really, that at least you've got something that's measurable. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's why I kind of, um, when I work with people, like to, so if we, for example, if I'm doing an eight-month coaching program, we start with a goal that they'd like to reach from that point onwards, basically. Mm -hmm. So we break down what the SMART goal is, um, but we also look at things like obstacles they may face during that time and how to overcome them. So that's where we look at your habits and your attitudes. So what kind of thinking do you have? Do you have limiting beliefs? For example, um, people, a lot of people say, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? You know, like, so when you say, what if? You kind of prevent yourself from moving forwards with a goal. Mm -hmm. Or they might say, like, yes, but so it's something about something being positive but negating yourself or other people about an idea or, or something that you want to do yourself so it's kind of looking at you know going really quite inwards to think about how you stop yourself from progressing from moving forwards and kind of reaching your goal as well because we have these beliefs or habits that we have that we can't seem to understand or change but they've always been there and it sometimes takes someone to kind of point it out or like you know talk about it basically so it's kind of helping them to change their mindset a little bit to kind of reach those goals. This is almost like CBT, I guess, isn't it? It is. It is very much like CBT. Yeah, absolutely. Because we look at also self-image as well. So if you're not feeling, one thing I talk about a lot, I've been asked this year to talk about a lot is imposter syndrome and in the inner critic. So mm. what kind of, um, and this is something, I mean, men and women suffer from this. Men sometimes go, you know, sod it, I'm just going to do it anyway, you know, whatever. Whereas women will stop themselves from actually progressing because they feel that they're good enough or whatever it is. So this year particularly, um, I've been looking at sort of emotional well-being and part of that is around the inner critic and imposter syndrome and looking at that and how we can overcome that because I've coached people from, you know, over 60 to, you know, under 30 and people have suffered from the same thing because we're all human at the end of the day. It just manifests in different ways. So it's kind of helping people to progress from A to B. Yeah, well, I think, you know, imposter syndrome is, I think that every, everybody has, absolutely. I think you were alluding to a certain element of that in, in, in Amazon. I think I certainly had that as well. I think my approach has always generally been to um, to not let anybody in work at least know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it takes, um, because you make yourself vulnerable, don't you? And, and then you don't, because there's this competitive thing going around you and you don't want to, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I think it affects your. Um, I, I think. I mean, personally, I think it affects how your how that then translates into your home life. Hundred percent. Because you you end up having one personality for work and then another personality for home. Yes. Um, because you know, at, at home where you're in a more comfortable environment, you can allow yourself to be a bit more vulnerable. But then it starts to create quite a polarized uh feeling i guess because you're one person you, you then become two people almost absolutely and, and that's what i've realized i think over the last three years even though i've been working with leaders and managers i'm like everyone can benefit from this and i want everyone to benefit and get a value from what we're talking about not just 
being paid because you have budget in the in the company because you're an exec but rather that you know everyone gets the opportunity kind of to kind of go through coaching or discover these things I don't think we do it enough I don't think companies support their employees enough to kind of take themselves forwards and progress themselves there's great stuff coming out now I think and because of this year but I think it really needs to I think lots of people can benefit from the coaching not just leadership yeah absolutely I mean I think there's been an awful lot more awareness around mental health in the last couple of years as well but have you found that that's that that has changed more this year because of the pandemic completely completely and people are being more open about um how they feel as well because Mm. i mean one thing i ask people to do is to talk to other people about it whether it's their family or friends or their colleagues and what i've noticed i'm doing actually some delivery work um working on a portfolio for news uk currently Mm. um and um what I've noticed there is that, which is amazing, they send out a daily mental health tracker to their employees. Really? Basically. Yeah. So they basically send like a, a scale of one to 10 and it's like sad face, happy face. And um, that goes back to the management team who then, you know, look at their courses and think how they can support people. But it gets sent out every single morning, which is amazing. Oh. I haven't seen it anywhere else before. No, I've never seen anything like that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Do they act on it? They do. So actually, Music UK have got a big um, L&D um, uh, department and the courses that are coming out of it are, you know, lots of it can be around mental health and well-being. But what they also ask you to do is they say, we're here for you, we'll support you. Whatever you're going through, you can talk to us about it. And recently, last week, we had like some sessions and people were sharing their stories about how they were feeling. You know, this amazing woman who's a senior business analyst was just sharing about, you know, her experiences of this year, which is really moving. And I think that when you're able to share your story with other people, you're able to relate to that and also support each other with it as well. So I think that's what I've noticed, like sharing your story um, can be super powerful and a great way to get support. Mm. And sorry, Sam, go ahead. Well, I just had an idea in my head around kind of, I mean, do you have any ideas about what, what, to attribute this sort of behavior to specifically, whether it's but pandemic or anything otherwise? I think it's, it could, it's things that have existed possibly already, but I think the pandemic has accentuated what people are feeling, um, especially because they've been at home more their thoughts. Um, mm. They might be in environments where they live with other people that aren't their partner or their family. So they have to, you know, share tables and, and beds to do their work. So it's it's kind of it, it's I think it's the pandemic has definitely accentuated it, but I think mental health has always been hidden and it's always been an issue. And I think this has been a way to kind of raise it up and talk about it more openly. Because mm, I was just had a thought in my head that I wonder if this is a positive um, effect of social media potentially, because I think social media gets a lot of you know criticism but maybe because people are spending more time on social media they're actually seeing more of the world around them or paying paying attention to the screen a bit more but in a different way I don't know it just it was just an idea that came into my head yeah absolutely I think you're right actually Sam I think you know people I mean, everyone uses social media we all do but and some of it you know you have to sort of filter out but and some of it isn't so good for you but ultimately there is massive support out there if you need it um, mm. as well and people are especially you know the younger generation they're going to social media for support you know they're joining things up and you know for the black lives matter um protest this year that was all through social media and that's why mm. it wasn't just black people protesting it was everyone protesting about the same cause because of people sharing the experiences because of social media and going out there and you know supporting each other 
Mm. See, social media can be good. <laughs> <laughs> it can be, but I think there's a lot to do, isn't there? I think to kind of get it working in, in favor yeah. of like mental health and, and human behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of, uh, well, I've been listening an awful lot about um, the origins of sort of Web 1.0 and geo cities and things like Have that yeah. yeah there was it was listening to a, a one of my favorite podcasts is 99 percent invisible um there's a great story on that about um the origin of geo cities and the people who were archiving them and saving them before it was all turned off by yahoo no, um, really? but, wow. yeah so it's a, it's a, it's worth a listen um Good. it's a recommendation <laughs> yeah, that sounds um, great. but um it's fascinating i think about how that was such a positive world um you know the the onset of the internet and how it was very uh, polite and it was a new community that was coming together and it's amazing to think about how that's changed over the years and how the internet is slowly evolving and how our approach to culture i think um evolves with the internet really absolutely absolutely i mean and that's the thing it's the <clears throat> it shows the um the contrast between, you know, people, for example, taking Biden and Trump as an example, the contrast mm. between people's opinions, you know, that the Trump supporters and the Biden supporters and like social media has like, you know, I think Facebook have had to, obviously, since the last election, be incredibly, you know, incredibly careful about what they say and what they do and what they show and ban stuff. But, you know, just the diverse voices of like, you know, hate and love and support and not, it's just, you sort of wonder, like, it's as human beings, it's always been within us to have these viewpoints, but we never had a platform really like social media to share that on. And it's become like this, this, this thing where, you know, people can benefit, people can like, you know, suffer from it as well, get bullying, kids, you know, get bullied from it at school. And it's causing all sorts of issues. I remember reading about Facebook. I think they came up with the like um, thing and they said, I think it was on the social media program on Netflix, but they, they said we genuinely thought it was a great thing and a really positive thing to have because if you like something, then everyone would be really positive about it. But I guess what they didn't realise is that, or they might have realised, is that people, if they don't get likes, get really low self-confidence mm. or they feel stupid or they feel ridiculous and they take their post off. And that can go from three years old to like, you know, 70 years old, I've seen, you know. So it's I'm not sure about them being um, oblivious to what problems it could have caused, but um, it does has caused a lot of issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's an awful lot of issues with that. And then obviously we know all the issues around fake news as well. And then fake ending news. up in a fake news bubble. <laughs> oh, my God. It's awful. It's awful. <laughs> I, I, I listen since the uh, since the election, I've pretty much done uh, the US presidential election. Obviously, I've uh, I've done pretty much nothing but listen to CNN in the background. Love CNN. And, <laughs> <laughs> but occasionally I like to dip into Fox as well, ah. just to get the other just to get the other side. Tell um, me, what's the, what's the, do you see a vast difference in opinions and things like um, that yeah i do um it's it's interesting how one can take the same story and have entirely opposite reaction <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's absolutely fascinating in fact to see how uh how how they can have the, exactly that same story with a polar opposite view of you know you've either got the crazy republicans or you've got the crazy democrats and I just don't understand how they can interpret the same story in totally different ways. It's unbelievable. And it, really it doesn't is. seem that anything relies on facts anymore at all. No, and that's the scary thing about what we've seen as well, isn't it? That people believe whatever someone tells them because they want to believe it. And 
it's it's going to be you know it's going to be an interesting journey to see what happens over the next few years with social media do you know of anything any initiatives that are going on to kind of change it or you know like is there anything that's happening in the world to kind of make it i mean that's what that social dilemma was all about wasn't it yeah sort of voicing the the responsibility the social responsibility that social networks have yeah absolutely absolutely that might take a bit of time no exactly but it's it's Mm. it's it's fascinating and to you know be part of this era is is amazing to see like all the changes especially have been working in the tech world you know from doing computer science degree to kind of being developer to managing projects and see the the changes that, that happen but one thing that hasn't changed is obviously people and the people culture and how you deal with people and that sort of stuff so that's always remain the same it's technology that's advanced i think we just need to advance a bit more in terms of like work culture and nurturing our employees i think a bit more is there like would you say there's a bit of a foundational kind of people skill that can carry across no matter what is happening if that makes sense yeah definitely i always um i always um talk about emotional intelligence um dan goldman um created this framework many many years ago and one of his components of emotional intelligence is self-awareness and when you're aware of your own sort of emotions, your own thoughts, your own actions, and, and you're aware of other people's, then you're able to be more collaborative. You're able to be more um, trusting with each other and actually work together in a better way. Um, and it, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to have, but often we don't have self-awareness. Like we don't really think about what we think and why we're thinking that. And I think it's also quite painful to do, but I think implementing some sort of self-awareness is, is super important for everyone, I think, to kind of, in any industry, at home, at work, whatever it is, I think it's, it's a really great skill to have. How do you go about sort of setting a foundation for self-awareness then? Um, so I teach, the way I, I kind of um, go through it is basically to, so for example, um, in my inner critic sort of seminar that I do, we talk about negative thinking and mm. where that's coming from. So one of the techniques that I would use um, with people is to write down, start writing down their their thoughts on paper as when it pops up so what happens is you're taking it out of here onto paper so you're able to kind of read through your thinking firstly like why and then you can identify patterns of why you're thinking that so could it be that something says something to you is it triggering off something from um your relationship what's happening there so it's almost like therapy i suppose going a bit deeper so but it is really taking those thoughts out of your head and writing them down and understanding why you're feeling a certain way so your thoughts and emotions are very well tied together so if you're feeling sad why are you feeling sad so it's, it's constantly questioning how you're feeling and why and then you start to understand why it is and that you can change it as well because we're only in control of our thoughts no one else is making us think stuff we're the ones that can change it we're the ones that can make it feel, feel better so for example if we're feeling a bit sad do we go for a run do we do some exercise listen to music and it's that awareness to change it rather than staying in the rabbit hole and spinning out of control, basically, which is a lot of people do. And they got to start getting anxious, stressed out, depressed. So it's kind of teaching those techniques to people to kind of go, this is the base of self-awareness. And it's about practicing that self-awareness because those negative thoughts won't ever go, but you can start managing them at least. It sounds like a lot of the uh, the stuff that you're focusing on is is about trying to get people to perform better, I guess, in themselves by approaching their mental health better approach their mental health better um, understanding their own poor thought patterns and behaviors mm-hmm. because that will positively affect the people that they're managing as well because once they can right. understand themselves they can start understanding other people a lot better 
um, and they're able to kind of have more empathy. Empathy is really important as well. I talk about that a lot and to empathize. And I'm not sure if Amazon had much empathy to be fair. <laughs> no, I don't think they did. In fact, I think our mutual manager from, uh, for, from uh, Love Film um, yes. actually left on principle because of that, if I remember yes. rightly. That's correct. Yeah. And so, but that's, it's, isn't it, is it, isn't it amazing that these things are missing like stuff that just makes you feel better about being in a company and, you know, like doing, doing the work there, but otherwise you get stuck in this, you get used to a culture that you're given. It's really bizarre. Mm. Well, I think that's why they have such a high turnover. I think there was a, there was a tool um, at Amazon which would tell you how how long you were in tenure at Amazon in comparison to everybody else. And I think the average. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, I think I think it might have appeared, or at least we got sight of it after after you left, because there were so many tools in Amazon for for everything, um, you know, and email groups and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, the the average tenure I think was two years. It was either two mm. years or at the time, 14 years. Um, and I think the difference was whether you had stock or not, because if you had stock, you were kind of tied in and you kind of needed to stay there until the stock vested. Absolutely. Um, otherwise you got out because, you know, within two years, you'd done four years worth of work. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Did you have to read, did you, have you worked anywhere like Amazon for, did you have to sort of relearn and kind of do stuff? Uh, for me, it was a bit of a shock. So I left Amazon to go to Tesco and found that they had, um, no inbuilt technology tools. So, you know, trying to, trying to meet somebody, I mean, it's, it's, it's an organization of a similar, similar size. So I think at the time, the, the budget for the IT department in Tesco was about a billion pounds, which is insane. I mean, it's a huge amount of money. Uh, you know, there were a three or 4,000 people that were involved in the company, but, you know, you were going to arrange to meet somebody and you, you had to arrange to meet them in a certain building and there was no way to see what they look like, um, you know, where exactly it was that you were going to meet them. Whereas obviously Amazon had a tool called the phone tool where you could see exactly what somebody looked like, their interests and where they sat and all that sort of stuff. And so every, uh, you know, every hour on the hour, there'd be a whole load of people in Tesco stood in a foyer going, are you are you, you Mapta? No. Uh, okay. Well, and, and everyone would be asking each other until eventually you finally found the person you were supposed to be meeting. And it was just so unorganized in that regard, but then also incredibly unorganized from a technical perspective, because, you know, you walked into that place and everybody was, uh, you know, suited and booted and, you know, cool. blue shirts. And if anything happened, uh, that was bad, they'd get on the phone to IBM and that would be the way that they resolve their problems. And uh, slowly but surely, it became a tech organization. And they've actually done amazing things since then. And I was just at Tesco um, just last year because I was working with another company, Paypoint, over the road from them. Mm. And they've transformed. I mean, it's a different company now. Um, they are a proper technology organization. But it's take, it took them a long time, I think, to get there. Because when you're trying to turn a company that big, uh, you know, their desire was to become like an Amazon-type company. Uh, yeah. But yes, yeah, stepping out of somewhere where you've got all of these resources available to you, um, that was quite a shock um, from a, a culture shock from a, how everything worked and behaved. And, you know, the pace of delivery was incredibly slow, mm -hmm. um, but also a culture shock in terms of how, how people worked. I think, you know, I was certainly lacking a lot of empathy. Um, I think that was probably quite present at Amazon as well, but it just sort of fitted into the culture. <laughs> Absolutely. You just adjust accordingly, basically, because that's what you get used to. And, you know, you don't necessarily challenge the status quo. 
you know, because it's just the way it is, you know. And um, but it's yeah, super interesting. I can imagine Amazon Tesco has been completely different to, to oh, work at. <laughs> yeah, it was it was totally it was like it was like opposites to a certain degree. Yeah. It was uh, it was quite extreme. Because everything's tech now, isn't it? If you think about it, like I, I I say I work in tech, but like every company is is tech. Mm. You know, every every company is trying to shift from you know like the, the Tesco's or the even New UK's like from paper publishing mm. to making it you know available and work well on the iPads and the iPhones and like you know going out there. So it's like every industry is now shifting, but some obviously companies are doing it better than others, but. Yeah, it's 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 less and less that an organization is just after a better IT function. But I think, you know, as I consult for places that are wanting to approach a digital transformation, it's amazing how many people are still divorced from their technology. That this is still this thing that happens off to the left hand side or wherever, um, rather than actually addressing that as the core function of their business now. And I think, you know, you're starting to see it. I mean, just this week we've heard about arcadia going into collapse and i think yes. part of that obviously there's there's many many different aspects that, that are, are, are baked into that but again you know that was a massive company that didn't really push online as much as it should have done yes um you know i think if you don't do that then you will have your business eaten away by other people who are willing to do that absolutely and then you look at like the smaller startups like people who've got amazing ideas genius people like amazing mm. you know process and tech and that sort of stuff and but they don't have the skills to maybe grow a company or push it forwards or whatever it is you know so there's like different issues in different places but i, I see that with like the smaller companies now, the startups where people are struggling to you know get to the point where they can um grow because they've got enough experience that the big companies have to you know get to that point but it's um i'm not sure if you worked with any startups recently or you're doing some work with them but it's interesting so very different yeah. Yeah, no, I I have been working with a, a, a startup for the last uh, last eighteen months or so, and it, it's a different environment. Do do you tend to um, do you tend to do work with with larger companies or smaller companies with the new leadership? Um, I've done mainly smaller companies actually, and I've mm. done mainly um, coaching with leaders who are probably in their late twenties, early thirties. Oh, okay. Um, as well so I do really understand because when I was in my late 20s early 30s I was still learning a lot just about mm. work and experience and where things were about people for example like how to deal with people um, so and these guys are running like these amazing organizations but often and have the ideas and the vision but often the, the culture or how they're managing the work isn't so efficient basically mm. um and i think it's important for those guys to have like mentors or like people they can go to kind of to discuss how to kind of push it forward so ultimately you know some some startups will fail because of it you know it could be a mixture of things but what i've seen in the companies that i've worked in is that it's really around the people culture that's been suffering so employees are unhappy they're working all hours um, there's no boundaries like people are, you know it's that's kind of the culture that I'm sensing at the moment there it's riddled I think with that kind of culture isn't it it's just it's all you hear about is the, all the long hours and all the rest of it and yeah it's um it's tricky absolutely absolutely pizza powered development <laughs> what's pizza yeah. powered development <laughs> well you know late late at night when you need to feed your team you get in the pizza that's it that's it <laughs> it's true and we, we went through lots of that yeah we had <laughs> back a few. at amazon yeah we did we yeah. did yeah it was a lot and we, we did, did work around the clock sometimes because yeah. you're working in seattle hours as well so it's the only way to win people <laughs> apparently yeah, all that or beer 
you know. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Well, this is one of the things that's that's actually baked into Amazon, though, because they talk about the size of a team being a pizza team, because it's actually designed around the size of the team being a, the team that can share a pizza. And there is a practical. I think there's just a practical element from ordering from Domino's for that. I think you know it's that, that sort of the. Uh, the approach, I think. Do, do you tend to teach um, some specific skills as well, Mamta, or do you tend to are you tend to focus on the, the the coaching side of the mental health more than more than the skill set? Um, it's yeah, definitely. Um, it's definitely bespoke. So there is a lot of the emotional well-being and looking at the sort of internal stuff, but a lot of it is practical. So the, I will ask them whether they what skills they like to improve. So is it assertiveness? Is it delegation? Is it strategic thinking, making decisions, communication, whatever it is. So we'll discuss at the beginning of any program and kind of bring those into the program itself so we can actually help them to prove their skills because those skills as a leader, not as a leader, are super important. And some people are great at communication, some people are not so good, Uh, or, you know, being a visionary as well. So we kind of think about how that can work. I've even worked with people to, like, look at organisational structures and the people in there and how it works. That's been really interesting too. So actually... I have to say, I love my I love my job because you know it encompasses everything. It's the, mm. the love the work that I love working in corporates, but also the people as well and bringing that together. And I can walk away from any politics and <laughs> not have to sort of be you know tied to any deliverables. Um, and that's what's what's beautiful about it. And what brings me the most joy is seeing someone progress from you know like not being confident or not being able to communicate to say what they want to getting promotion and getting a pay rise because they had the guts to say that I want this you know and lots of us don't really have the the confidence to say what we want and what we need absolutely do you start to see um trends have you over the last few years that you've been doing this are you seeing similar requests or similar um issues that people have time and time again I do. I, I, I would say if I if I look at both, um, you know, if I look at the age ranges and genders, I'd say, you know, the biggest thing is I haven't got enough time. I haven't got enough time mm. to anything. Just haven't got time. You know, like, and it's just like everything in the online world now is like we're just doing everything and working long hours and not thinking stuff in. And we are, we're sacrificing our life. We're sacrificing time with friends, with family. Our work is suffering as well because we haven't got time to sit properly. Mm. And so it's about managing that but not being able to push back at work as well so mm-hmm. trying to say this is what I'm doing but I haven't got time for this I need someone else to do it. you know like it's just kind of being a communicate how you feel um, and the second thing that I'm realizing is that yeah people are doubting themselves mm. they're not feeling the best and this has come up more this year um, but I've really noticed that people of everyone of every age every gender is really suffering from the same thing I think and so I've seen very similar um issues and very similar stories from each of the clients that I have mm. do you see um I mean I think the time thing is is very uh, uh a very common thing and I think it's really interesting that obviously moving everything onto online and you know we've got the four hour work week and things like that out there yeah. moving everything online and the paperless office was supposed to save us time and it seems to be <laughs> absorbing more of it it does that's especially and that's the thing when you work like this you can work it'll go dark but you don't realize what time it is if you're, if you're doing other things and you're kind of in your flow but oh yeah the days disappear don't they they do they do but it really is about you know having a balance in your life is really about is it's really about like looking after yourself 
having like you know looking after your well-being looking after you know your life as well so it's kind of finding that balance but I think nowadays it was easier back in you know back in the day when we were nine to five and that's it home mm. but now we are just online constantly and all of us do different things so before it was just having one job but now yeah. we have like different initiatives that we're working on different projects different side hustles different things yeah the rise of the side hustle <laughs> the rise of the side hustle you didn't have that before no. but I think what I definitely been taught is that you don't have to do one thing only we're, we're as human beings we're interested in different things so why not create a life where you're able to do a multitude of things that make you feel interested you know I think that's a really interesting angle because do you think although we're busier do we feel more fulfilled or are we just getting distracted by that by that the stress I think um one thing I have noticed is that um especially with the millennials Chris are you, you must be no a millennial. A millennial, yeah, I am a yeah. millennial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, I think. Um, when does a millennial finish? I don't remember. 1996 or something. Oh, well, I'm definitely a millennial. I'm, an 80, <laughs> I'm 86. Sam, when were you born? 87. 87. So he's the young one on the call. <laughs> so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm the baby. Making about the, the things that I've read and, and kind of heard about is that um, you guys like to, you want value. You want to be able to like think that your work is meaning something and achieving something and doing something and I think that that's um that's why people if they're not if they need to pay their bills for example do a job but they want to do something else that makes them happy and fulfilled basically because if they're not having that in their day job they'll find something else to do so you're trying to tell me that you're not a millennial I can't believe looking at you <laughs> no, answer that you're, you're not a millennial how old am I now I'm 40 45 Bloody hell. I know, well <laughs> I try not to swear on this podcast, but I mean, that one deserves it, I think. Thank you. I hope you're in a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> I think I, I would have guessed at least 10 years earlier. Oh, um, bless you. Thank but obviously you. For, the, uh, for the people listening on the podcast, they'll just have to take that from your voice. That's true. That's true. And I, I honestly think ageing has changed as well. I think, you know, when my mum and dad were 45, I was like, that is well old. I mean, it oh, probably yeah. is well old to, to other people, of course, but I don't feel it. I think lots of my friends don't feel either. We still go to, yeah, we still go raving, go to clubs, <laughs> I, even though we have kids, get married, whatever it is. No, I think that's 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 definitely a thing as well, isn't it? I mean, you used to see the uh, the, the 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 little old women that were being interviewed on the news with their little shawls over their head, and they were like forty five. You know, <laughs> so it's changed know. entirely, hasn't it? It really has. You know what? It's crazy because I really do enjoy getting older because I really feel that I'm learning more as I get older. Like I just my world's opening up a little bit more and the things that I've done over the last three years I never thought number one I have the courage to do and number two that I had skills to do mm. as well so I really feel that we limit ourselves in what we think we can achieve but when you kind of dream and open up yourself you can, you can do whatever you want you know and it's just kind of realizing mm. those dreams. Well I think it's really interesting what you, you, were, uh, you were flagging just before um, about the, uh, the sort of change that you get when you're when you're around you know, these, these people you're coaching who are in their late 20s, early 30s. And I think, if I, you know, it's not that long ago for me, but if I think about my late 20s, I have a totally different attitude. I mean, I think I actually thought I knew everything in my late 20s. In fact, if I go back, I think I, I always thought I knew everything. I probably think that now. And every time you uh, every time you look back by five years, you realize how much you've learned in that space of time. You know, I think it's... Uh, it, being open to that, I think, is is really important. I think that's the the sort of thing you only start to realise in your thirties, probably. You do. Uh, yeah. You really do, and that growth is so important because that that's what 
that's what changes politics that's what changes policies that's what changes the world you know for you to be able to grow and say get your voice heard and make changes and be brave enough to make those changes and go out there and I think that um it should be encouraged a lot more especially um you know at the school age you know we get mm. taught maths and science and English still but like what about the other skills that we need to, to become these well-rounded human beings like we don't get taught that at schools you know yeah, I think the other thing that tends to not get taught is, you know, we always have these revered world leaders and they're just human beings as well. And they've only got a certain limited uh, years of experience too. You know, they may be in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, that's not a lot of time to be on the earth and be running a country. Um, you know, they must have a similar level of uh, of imposter syndrome, surely. You know, someone, someone as competent as someone like Barack Obama, you know, you would... You know, he he just seems like he's so in control and knows everything. But inside, he must be uh, he must be having some self doubt. Absolutely, because that's what human nature is. Like we're all made the same way. We're all wired the same way. So we all think the same way. And, and I think that I think that they yeah, absolutely like you look at your idols or whoever they are. But I think it's important to know that you can also become that if you wanted to as well. Like people stop themselves from. I remember in my career's guidance. Um, in school it's so rubbish it's really bad like wanting to become I think I said I want to become a psychologist or something like that and they're like well that doesn't exist and you can't do that anyway because you need to be cleverer <laughs> you need to have like oh better God. grades or something I, and I was like so from that point onwards I was like well I can't do this then can I <laughs> I had a similar thing I said I wanted to be an actor and they said to me well you know you you should have probably gone to acting school a lot younger if you want to be an actor. So choose something else. And I didn't pursue yeah. acting then. It was crazy. Sorry, that, too late. That is nuts, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. Bonkers. Yeah, I remember. Did, did you ever have to do one of those things where you had to fill in a questionnaire on a computer to tell you what your career was going to be? Do you know what? I don't think computers existed then at school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> BBC, sorry. I, for, I forget BBC you're not a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> the BBC computers existed, but they weren't that, that sophisticated. But I think I did a paper questionnaire at least. Yes. <laughs> well, we, we had one of the first generations, I think, of uh, one of these computer questionnaires that would actually give you an output. And I think it had everything from, from mine. Uh, there was a couple of options. One was fence erector and the other one was aeronautical engineer. So, you know, That's really, <laughs> you know, I've kind of tried to shoot somewhere in between. Um. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Fence erector. Oh, my word. I didn't even know that existed. It's very specialist. No, it, it is very specialist. You know, fences are tricky. Um. <laughs> uh, so, any, I mean, heading back onto, onto your leadership side of things, I mean, you, you've done a lot of work uh, with uh, women in particular and women in business, and you've done stuff around uh, LGBTQ. Um, do, what, what drives your focus into those particular areas? I mean, obviously, you know, we need better representation, I think, in the workplace, but, yeah. uh, you know, give us your perspective. Well, actually, I don't know if I'll, because I haven't spoken to you so many years, but um, I think one thing that I've been brave enough to do is to, I was with my partner, had been with my partner for 13 years, who's a woman, mm -hmm. um, but I was always afraid to come out at work. And I don't think I ever was, I don't, I don't think it's about three or four years ago that I was ever able to tell people that I was gay and talk mm -hmm. about my sexuality in an open way. Um, and that really stopped me from moving forwards um, because it was hard enough in tech. I mean, I didn't really think being Indian or being female would stop me from getting a job or doing well. But when I used to see the sort of the upper management side of things, I didn't see anyone who looked like me. Mm. 
Mm. And so I think that really kind of thought, I thought to myself, well, I don't have that. That's why I went contracting. I was like, well, I've got this point in project management. I do really well. I might just go contracting because I don't think I could press any further. So I was, I wasn't hiding. I wasn't able to hide my, my um, gender or my ethnicity, but I was able to hide my sexuality because I thought that was just another thing that would mm. hinder me from moving forwards. But when I was able to be open about it, and we had a lot of family issues as well. And my partner's Indian. Um, we ended up getting married last year after, you know, 13 years with our families being there, which was amazing. Oh, congrats. And after they sort of said they would disown us for many really? years. Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's crazy. it was that's really good. tough. Um, and now we're in the middle of the adoption process. So we're, we're looking for a little oh. one to, to, um, to be with and for them to be with us. So hopefully be parents next year. So I think being woman, being a brown woman and also um, being gay um, has made me want to help other people and kind of really raise up that it doesn't matter where you come from, you can do just as well. Well, I think that's amazing. And congratulations on going through the adoption process and getting married. I think that's Thank wonderful you. news. It's Thank wonderful you. News. That's really sweet. It's, it's been a tough ride, definitely, to, to, be, to be confident about your authentic self. And I think that's one thing sometimes we don't do. So that, that's why I think when I got the courage to say who I really was and what I was about, that's when really lovely stuff started happening, you know, to be able to kind of go out there and talk about your story and share your experiences and help other people, you know, grow in, in different areas. So I think those are the sort of areas that I'm particularly passionate about for sure. And we talked before about keeping your personal and, and, uh, and work life separate. Were you yeah. open enough in your personal life as well? Obviously you were living with a partner, but um, did you... Yeah. Uh, not to my family, not to my mum and dad. Mm. They, they kind of knew anyway, but they kind of forced me out of the closet when I was 21 and shoved me back in for a good 20 <laughs> years. So <laughs> they're like, no, you're going back in. And I was like, so I stayed back in, basically. Oh. And so because of that, I felt a lot of shame um, about who I was as a person. And I wasn't able to talk about it. And I, honestly, like, I had a great time with all the guys I used to work with, like yourself and, like, you know, like, it was a lot of fun. I, I got great friendships, but I just wasn't confident enough to talk about my my personal life. I don't think. I don't know why. I don't know if that was like boys' environment or what it was, but it was it was you know tough to to want to be yourself or be yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, Sam and I have talked with with other people on on this podcast about uh, about women in tech and uh, black and brown people in tech and why there's. Well, it's quite a weird mix, I think, because there are a lot of Indian people in tech. There's actually yeah. quite a lot of Indian women, I suppose, probably more than there are white or black women. Um, but the the amount of women is still far reduced in comparison to the uh, the, the white middle class male. <laughs> Absolutely, um, and I think the, the Indian the Indian um, community comes from living in India, growing up and, and coming over to the UK or different areas of, of the world with their skills because in India they, they realize that to get from working class to middle class level going in this industry is the best route for them as well mm. so I think a lot of them um, you know which is amazing and I think that's where the community of Indian women and men has grown from definitely and I think I don't see many British Asians in tech unless oh, they're in project management or they're in marketing whatever it is or whatever it is so I don't see many British Asians being able to do that and I don't see that coming from schools here either Mm. you know i wonder what we can do in, in schools to kind of i think we have more options here though like we are we, we there's so many opportunities open up to to people that we can choose different yeah. you know careers and so i think that's another reason why women don't necessarily want to go into tech because there's other things they can do and, and enjoy although they might be very good at it 
Is that something that you're you're working on now then to try and figure out a way of promoting that to younger yeah younger definitely women. and it's it's kind of and also it's like doing the research isn't it asking why what is it mm. about the industry that perhaps doesn't appeal to you is it the work is it the culture is it you know is it something else that you want to do um there was a, a research i can't remember the paper but i can send it over uh, about this topic and they said that this is the reason why they said that the the technical the tech side is more prevalent in india um, rather than here for women because there's more options in, in Western countries for, mm. for women and less options for, for women in India, for example. And so they end up going to tech because then they can, you know, look after their families, um, you know, buy a house, you know, look after their, their mum, dad, that sort of stuff. So does it really come down to the availability of options or is it that is actually actively sort of discouraged or at least I think there's there's definitely a culture of, I think this is probably more so, I don't know whether it's more so now or whether it was in the past, but there was always a, a, a viewpoint that computers and games, particularly on computers, were for boys. That's true. And I was a bit of a tomboy, to, to be honest. I used to love <laughs> playing games <laughs> um, when I was a kid. And I think my parents weren't very surprised when I went into to computer science. But mm. no, I think, I think you're right. Like If I look at my nephews and my niece... You know, they, my niece has no interest in going anywhere near a computer, whereas my, the boys do. Um, and so, and it, but it's those gender roles, though, isn't it? That hasn't really changed. In no, and I think right? you even get like a split even in the types of games that people play as well. <laughs> you know, the serious games are the games for the boys, you know, and then the, the less serious games, are, you know, the things that you would play on maybe a Nintendo Switch or a, any, yes. any Nintendo product, actually, I guess, yes. uh, would be considered more feminine. And Absolutely. I think maybe that even creates a barrier for actually getting into pro getting into and learning programming. And I think it's a real shame considering that some of the, you know, the, the pioneers of programming are female. Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the things there's so much, I want to do so much, so, so much. <laughs> it's just like wanting to get like one thing at a time, like change and, and make an impact and really help people progress forwards. But I think, there's still, there's still big gaps in tech, especially in the Western world, to kind of, you know, um, you know, to try and get more diverse, more of a diverse workforce. Um, but I, I never, you know, I never felt, I didn't feel out of place, to be honest. And I had, like I said, I make such great friends. Yeah, they're mainly guys, mainly white guys, but hey, I had a great time. <laughs> and, you know, everyone supported me since. I, I've had like the most amount of great support networking. The network that you create in all these companies is, is super. Do you think that, you know, you mentioned before that you didn't see anybody like you around the leadership table. Are you starting to see that change? Um, you know what? It's interesting. I was doing a, a DNI and um, workshop recently and I gave the example of the BBC. When I worked there in 2008, I'd never seen anything like it. And mm. I was on my floor was someone who was deaf. So he was my graphic designer, but the BBC gave him a signer to be with him all the time so he, he could understand us and then we oh. could understand him wow and they would have um you know, i saw my the first transgender openly transgender employees at the bbc um blind and uh all colors are represented lgbtq wasn't an issue at the beef everyone's pretty much gay there anyway um, <laughs> <laughs> um so that was good but it got less diverse as you went up the ranks mm. so you never saw that diversity of the top management and you still don't see it and that's the issue. You go to any big company and there is still the same type of person in these roles. And I think that hasn't changed much. So there might be changing the diverse workforce in middle management, in the employees, 
but I think there's still work to be done at the top level. And what is it that will change that? Is it is it time? Is it initiatives? Is it? It's uh, definitely initiatives, but a lot of them do fail because they they're not um, necessarily nurtured. Mm. Um, one of my one of my coaches, she was saying that in her company that the first thing they got rid of when that's cut money was the DNI stuff, basically. So, you know, it's about people taking it seriously, but also it needs to come from the top down the change as well so you can get the hr partners business partners and, and managers wanting to change it but unless it comes from the person at the top it's going to be very mm. difficult to change um the culture and change the people but um but i think that will take time i think that'll take time i think that the 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 um the will is there to do it but mm. the the time to do it um it hasn't enough change hasn't been made yet it'll take, it'll take a few more years i think Mm. I just I'm curious just to return to the point that you mentioned before as well about not um about choosing not to come out in the workplace mm. um and choosing to go in as a contractor do you think if you had been uh if you had come out earlier or if you had decided to stay in permanent employment either of those two moves do you think that would have affected your your career path and in what way that's interesting. Um, so I was, so I, I did stop contracting when I went to Exido, which is a Swedish company. Mm-hmm. And um, it's because it was a smaller company. So I thought I had more opportunity. But, and to be completely honest, the other reason I chose that company not to be contractor was because I met the CEO who was this amazing Swedish man. And he, he said to me, I don't care what, who you are, what you look like, your experience is amazing. And he said to me, you choose the role that you want to do in my company and I'll create it for you, basically. Wow. And wow. I was like, that has never happened to me before. So I was like, how about global program director? <laughs> 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 so I wrote the job spec um, and he, he, he was so, he, he was amazing. I've never experienced anything like it. And so should I say that, was it because he's it's a Swedish company, not a British company, that that happens? I'm not sure. But I don't think I would have got the same opportunity as I would have there anywhere else you know um and I, I think that's maybe being unfair to british companies but i can ever see a path whether i went permanent or i came out of my sexuality i never saw a path where i could actually progress how i wanted to progress or have the confidence to do it as well mm. because i had amazing bosses i had amazing colleagues but i never had a sponsor They'd, no one i didn't have anyone really having that person to go okay go up you're, you're good enough like just do what you need to do never really had that before mm. i mean i think that's hard anyway if you're a contractor yes, um i think absolutely. We've, all all three of us on this call have, have, uh, have spent a lot of time as contractors i think it's very difficult to find yourself a mentor when you're in that environment indeed it really is and so it's kind of exploring opportunities not being afraid to reach out and and saying what you want i don't think you know i would have been able to experience what i experienced without um the CEO having that faith in me, basically having my back and, you know, bringing me into his company. And I loved it. It was one of the best places I've ever worked. And when I told them about new leadership and that what I wanted to do, they're like, yeah, go for it. We'll support you. We'll even become your clients. It's all good. Wow. You know, so that kind of culture, it wasn't perfect, but like that kind of culture really does help you grow. And for me, the social mobility part of it is really important. So I wasn't, I was managing the EMEA team, but I got to know people in different offices like Mexico, for example, we had a team in Guadalajara and I was often responsible for people reaching out to me saying, I'd really like to move 
to another country? Do you think that's possible? So I remember helping um, this amazing young woman from Mexico who's an iOS developer and move her and her husband to Sweden in Stockholm where they have two kids now. And they're, they're just, they're, they're um, what's it called? Their ability to have a much higher standard of life is possible now because they're living there and the company allow people to move around to different countries to kind of improve their way of living, I think as well. So that was pretty amazing to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's incredible that you would get that level of support from a company as well to start a new venture. Absolutely. So I think that's mainly in the smaller companies, I think, probably that would happen now, rather than the bigger ones, I think. I'm not sure, but... Uh, yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah. I don't know, really. I mean, I guess you do get a lot of relocations, for example. You know, the other true. element of what you've just spoken about with, with larger companies, it's easier for them to do that's that. True. But supporting those um, those smaller ventures, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I guess but, a lot of the guys went to Seattle, didn't they? Actually, yeah, actually... actually I mean, it's interesting, obviously, you, you went to Sky um, and obviously came from the BBC. Um, I was at the BBC as well before I joined Love Film. Yes. So I think there were a lot of people who came from the BBC to Love Film and Amazon. And there was a lot of people who went either to Seattle or to Sky. Um, I think there was a couple of other places where people have ended up, like a DAZN, for example. A lot of people yeah, yeah, have ended yeah, up over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and a few others. I mean, a talk talk, I think, was another one where a few people ended up. So it's uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of people who've gone to the similar sort of little pockets of the same type of company. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, I was going to mention something else to you just then. Um, yeah, what's next for the new leadership? Then where are you going now? So, um, gosh, I am taking some time to uh, think about what programs I'd like to launch next year so I think lots of around authentic leadership so I'd like to do maybe um, some masterminds around everything that I've learned and bringing a group of people together to kind of um, you know create um, authentic leadership in their companies so that's one thing um, I love my one-to-one coaching so I'll definitely continue continue with that um, I've been approached by a company in San Francisco to do an audio course as well so that'd be wow. really cool based on some, a program that I did this year um, so that's really cool. So, and for me, it's kind of continuing to make an impact. And 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 I think what I've realised this year as well is that not just for leaders, but for everyone. So yeah. I really want to make it try and make an impact for everyone. So for me, it's it's creating programmes with people in companies, but also the young people uh, who can benefit from you know becoming these healthy, emotionally well being human beings and and change the world. So that's my, that's my goal. It's a big goal to have. <laughs> I will start, I'm started, but I will continue to do that. I think for many years. A lofty goal, a lofty goal. A lofty indeed. goal, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it's great to see that you've had such success doing this um, and you. you've been able to get clients and you've been able to, uh, to, to help people. But for listeners on the, to the podcast, how can they get in touch with you or learn more about you or, or, or get involved with, with the new leadership? So, of course, you can look me up on LinkedIn, um, but also my email address, if you need to contact me, is mamta.gera at thenewleadership.com. Um, so please feel free I get free a flurry to... of requests for that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but feel free to, honestly, I love, I will have copies, virtual copies of everyone if I could. So I, I'd love to hear from you and hear your experiences and, and, and see, see what you're up to. Great, great. Well, uh, I mean, thank you for your time today, Mamta. It's been amazing to to talk to you again. Um, 
I just wanted to to, uh, to to reiterate a piece that we were mentioning as we were setting up because you were an inspiration to me when I was starting out at Love Film. Obviously, I was, uh, I think, as we've established, I was quite a bit younger than you. I don't think I realised that. Um, but you seem to have it all together. And I think it was uh, it, it was inspiring to see how someone gets stuff done in Love Film and then subsequently in Amazon. Um, and it was always good to see someone who just, you know, had it sorted you know so it's a good inspiration that's so kind of you chris i never realized that but so that's i'm, I'm blushing because <laughs> this is can't see it but that is really kind of you to say and that's made me feel like super happy and and uh, it's very sweet and it's really lovely to see your face again after so many years <laughs> we'll have to catch up again at some point that sounds um, good that obviously sounds when good. Uh, maybe when covid restrictions are, are over and we're finally all cured globally <laughs> and uh, people can meet face to face again exactly. rather than over zoom That'd be great. I'd love that. All right. Thank you very much. All right, guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.